0: fashion fam. I hope that you are all enjoying your summer. We're in the second week of our summer replay series, bringing back some of the top episodes from season one. Next up, the fabulous Simon Doonan. Reading his book about the life and death of artist Keith Haring was transformational. There were so many key lessons and takeaways reflected throughout the course of his life. And Simon is not only an iconic window dresser and fashion icon, but he's a phenomenal writer. I mean, amazing. I highly recommend adding it to your summer reading list. Check out our conversation.
1: Resilience that Keith Herring showed throughout his formative years. As an example, there was a particular college he wanted to study at, but he couldn't get in and didn't have the money. So he worked as a janitor in that college. Cleaning toilets Taking out the trash And taking classes In semiotics Like I think That kind of thinking Now when no one's Handing you nothing No one Keith Herring Would be somebody Good to keep in their sights Like Oh he was Unstoppable How many dishwashing jobs Did he take to keep things moving and to pay the rent, pay his expenses, and buy art supplies, and I found all that very inspiring, and I relate to it because at my generation, we were like that—working class kids who wanted to be part of the swinging groovy yep. situation <laughs> that's unfolding. Simon Dunan is a living.
0: Fashion legend and is widely known for his work as the creative mastermind behind the iconic window displays at Barney's. Over the course of his career, Simon wrote a style column for Slate Magazine, made several TV appearances, and landed a new role as a judge on NBC's Making It. He is also the author of several books, including a new book release this week, Keith Haring, one of the first books in the Lives of Artists series. It's a must read. The book is an inspirational and magical experience transporting the reader into the golden era of art and fashion in New York City, full of so much creativity, but equally full of crisis and obstacles through the lens of someone who was there. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with fashion icon and author Simon Dunan. also please don't forget to subscribe review and tell us what you think of the show you can also support the podcast by having a fashion moment with our exclusive t-shirt and mug available at a fashion slash shop now on to the show Simon Dunan. Welcome to a fashion moment. I am thrilled to have you here. You look amazing as always. Um, (laughs) Just for our audience who may not know who you are. I mean, obviously, you know, I know who you are and lots of industry people uh, know who you are, but you know, we have listeners all over the country and the world who may not be familiar with your work, but just to give a quick rundown, you're obviously an iconic window dresser garnered yeah, your notoriety, um, at Barney's, uh, the windows, amazing, iconic. I mean, you've won almost every fashion award there is, especially the coveted CFDA award. Um, you are the author of several books, um, and obviously the newly released book about, um, you know, Keith Haring and his amazing life, but also, you know, drag the complete story and how to be yourself, life-changing advice from a reckless contrarian and much more. I mean, there's so many. You're, I mean, honestly, I don't know how, how in the world do you churn out all of these amazing books? Like seriously, I mean, and they're so well-written and so thoughtful. I mean, I'm just blown away. I said, Winston Churchill is knocked to the side. You're actually like above- in my mind, because you give the wit, and then you give the history and then you also provide, you know, context into what's happening.
1: Oh, well, I, I think... The short answer to that is for for so many decades, I had this job, like this intense corporate job at Barney's. And, you know, it was old school. We had to be there at eight in the morning and then the store closed at nine in the evening. It was like all, it was like my life. And I did very well in that environment and I had a lot of success there. But when I left, you know, when it ended, I had all this time on my hands, and I was used to being busy all day. So writing, um, you know, writing is an incredible outlet for me. I it, it's like uses up all this time. Otherwise, I literally, I don't know, I'd probably be like a crystal meth addict, or, something <laughs> or I'd be right. I'd have gone insane. You know? <laughs> you know, I, I obsessively needed need stuff to to chew on every day. So books, you know, you know, writing takes forever writing is rewriting so i'm just supremely grateful to have these these book projects that come along and um i can focus on them obsessively wow. and chew on them and get into the research and all that I stuff love so it. I love
0: it. I'm chewing, nice. Simon. I'm like, I want more to chew. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we have one this month. Are we getting another one next month? So I, I'm i thrilled. And also we love you on NBC's Making It, an amazing show. You're a judge on that show. How in the world did did that come to be? Like,
1: what they well, it's kind of, funny. <laughs> it's sort of a funny story. My husband, Jonathan Adler, and I—we both were called to audition for that show, and um, so suddenly in our house, it's like B- Betty Davis and John. Oh Crawford my God! And he was very confident that he would get it because it's a show about craft, and you know. I was making giant poodles out of feather dusters and stuff like that. But he actually is a craftsman making pottery and like he deals with crafts. So he was like, don't worry. You know, it's fun to do auditions, you know, but, and he was already like planning his on camera. <laughs> and then hello, the phone call came and I got it. Um, it was so hilarious. And I, continue to rub his nose in it th- to this very day and taunt him I love you know it. about being on a network show ha huh.
0: how about that oh,
1: sorry <laughs> Emmy nominated network uh-oh,
0: show uh oh yes we got to add that in there we've got <laughs> to add that in
2: there
1: so yeah it, but uh, it's really fun i thought well, this is my reward for all those years Whew. and years and years of being up all night doing window display with glue guns i get to now be like um you know, Simon Cowell on these crafts, but Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, they like it to be a very warm, positive show. Yes. Which I think that's why it's a hit. People want a bit of positivity. Yes. And uh, yeah, no, it's so fun to do. We just shot the third series in October. June I heard,
0: October. Dana was like, we're going out, we're going to be masked up, everybody's socially distant. So I'm curious to just see how it all came together. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, I mean thank God for Dana, because she she's the other expert <laughs> judge and she is my we go hiking together, we eat meals together, like because we're, you know, especially in the lockdown situation yeah. and her incredible husband Ryan, who's an actor, we all went hiking, we went to Forest Lawn Cemetery, oh, wow. we're so desperate for things. These are like on our days off yeah. so on Saturday, Sunday um wow. if ever you're in LA go to the cemeteries it's really fun and you get to see Betty Davis's grave and Carrie Fisher and um you know maybe I it's that morbid no oh my gosh not I mean I find it interesting I'm actually like okay
0: like I wonder what her tombstone looks like I may have to look that up like is like
1: what are we talking mega. Here? oh mega oh okay yes I on my list and Dana is Dana is so such a genius. She's so interesting because through Etsy, as I'm sure you realize talking to her, she has access to this incredible, she can really see what's trending, what's not, because she's looking at the vast num the vast Etsy data. Yeah. So she I'll say, Oh, I love, you know, I love a uh, unicorns. <laughs> and she'll say, very last year, darling. Like very, or well like she'll, because she, she can see what's coming and going, and um, so it's so fun for me to work with her. You're so staying on the great. pulse.
0: You're staying on the pulse. I mean, you have yeah,
1: so try much to. She calls me Granny. Did she tell Stop you my name? No, never, never. Granny can never find her glasses. Granny's always <laughs> late.
0: well. You're the chicest granny I've ever met.
1: Well, when you. T- Tell her, like, Simon Dooner was seven minutes late because he totally spaced, oh. and she's like, that's my <laughs> granny. I have to delve into this book
0: that you were, I mean, I got lost in the 80s. I got lost in your world, the club scene. I mean, you're name dropping here and there, like, with with the clubs. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, who knew there were so many clubs in New York and what was going, I mean, you know, it was before my time, so it was it was such an in-depth, history lesson, not only on, you know, Keith's life, but also what was happening in New York. So I want to circle back and, uh, and, and go back to, you know, why, why did you do this particular biography? Why did you start with this one?
1: Well, the publisher offered me the project, Lawrence King, but I had to seriously think about why Keith Herring, why now? Yes. Otherwise, you know, you're know, you writing about something that's not gonna get any traction with people. So you have to think about what, why now? And so I thought about it and I read a lot of stuff. I read his journals and I thought, oh yeah, I see why now. Because when Keith Herring became prominent in the eighties, he really, he really pushed a kind of activist, socially conscious art art for the people. He said it, you know, like I wanna make art for the people. He said, the people never get the art they deserve. They're always getting this weird stuff that they never understand, like abstract art, most of the population doesn't even get it. (laughs) But he wanted to get, he wanted to make art that communicated. So you get crack is whack, you get free South Africa, you get safe sex messages about AIDS. His art is infused with social justice messages. And so then going into the, he died early, um, you know, at the end of the eighties, yeah. early nineties. So then after that, the art world got very um, sensational, shocking, you know, you have artists like Damien Hirst and you have artists like, um, you know, Jeff Koons and their their goal was to create kind of um, these incredibly shocking installations that maybe were hugely expensive. It wasn't really art for the people in the way that, you know, Banksy is or Keith Haring is, is communicative art for people. So I feel like now, you know, we've gotten through the 90s and the noughts and we're in a moment where social justice art is a hugely... Vocal. So I think that's why Keith Haring has resonance now, because he is that person. He wanted to communicate messages that were relevant to people, all colors, all races. He was an inclusive guy. And, um, you know, that's why, that's why I thought, oh, great, got it. Absolutely. Now that's why Keith Haring by now.
0: And he would be considered a major artist, the expressionism movement. Like, how would you describe that to folks who aren't necessarily a part of the art world? Like, how would you describe his method of, of art?
1: I would say it came out of the graffiti movement, graffiti world. I'm, there probably is a fancy term for it, (laughs) but it doesn't (laughs) spring to mind. Yeah. But he definitely came out of that, you know, he was a defacer, like the graffiti guys who changed the subway system (laughs) with their incredible artwork. And, you know, when Keith Haring came along, that was considered a blight. Wow. You know, all the mayor Koch was trying to get it off the subways. People couldn't believe it was just everywhere. And um, it was considered a blight and Keith Haring by doing his defacing campaigns in the subway, people started to see. Oh no, this is kind of, this is, actually love it or hate it, it's art. It's incredible. It's this intense language with its own, own, um, you know, styles and ideas. Oh, he
0: was, he was going into some really interesting like symbols. You know, you have the barking dog, you have the, the baby, like, and I, I love how you um, sort of go into the details of his earlier life and, and, you know, just how much he loved kids and children and the innocence and sort of, you know, picking up that children sort of have this intuition and, and ability to sort of connect with energy and really sort of like taking that to heart. Through through some of his symbolism and art, which I thought was fascinating. Cause I, I was just like, oh, like it's a figure like with energy or something. You know, I didn't know what it was. So it was really great to sort of see that breakdown in his life and and where the symbol sort of came from. And the sexuality um, as as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, he he um, you know, his dad was a very skilled cartoonist, not professionally, um, but you know he loved to draw and Keith grew up drawing cartoons and grew up watching cartoons so he was in that pop mentality of cartoons and and I guess they're called pictograms that's the, the typical word for it his he created this language of pictograms that you could see oh I read the radiant baby the flying saucer yes. the man with the hole in his stomach the leaping dogs um you know they like you're smiling now because they're, they're kind of great. They're, they're adorable. So and fun. you get them, you get it right away. When you see them, you don't have to read about it. You know, um, as I say, he um, knew how to communicate directly to people in the way that cartoons do. And so, yeah, he's part of that cartoon graffiti, like Kenny Sharp. Yes. Oh my girl. God. That relationship. With yeah. between The two of them. I mean,
0: honestly, how did you, how did you discover all of these personal details? Were they, were they sort of like highlighted in his diary and his writings? Like, you know, I know that you also mentioned um, some of the other artist journals. I mean, where did you get this?
1: <laughs> well, what I did was basically, I guess I read about five books mm-hmm total and I researched a million articles on the on the Herring Foundation website there's great stuff on there and what happens after a while because I wrote that column for the New York Observer for 10 years and then mm. I wrote for Slate for five years you start to get in the habit I'm sure you've you know you understand this where things jump out yes okay so you hear oh you know Keith Haring lived opposite the club bars, the sleazy <laughs> bar. Well, yeah, a lot of that. Certain things just are more interesting rather than, you know, the, like, I don't think anyone cares which high school he went to, but they do care that the fact that when he was delivering newspapers, he was he would stop off and masturbate all the time in every in every public. Yeah, time. that was
0: so. I mean, the word rake would come up so much in the rake, but then also words like you know uh, democratization and just you know sort of these themes that also jumped out as you were telling
1: his story. So it's <laughs> he's so honest. Like I really appreciated his honesty because now I think. There's a tendency people to want people to see them as selves, as paragons. Yeah. He doesn't do that. He's like, I was horrible to my first girlfriend. I deceived her. We had fights. We had physical fights. He's just honest. Yeah. And he's a flawed guy who ultimately, the aggregate is very sweet and appealing and real. Absolutely. So that's much appreciated. I think when you're reading about somebody that they're just like, give it to you warts and all here's yes. the stuff where really effed up. And here's the stuff. That's what people want. It was so you know, honest. It was so yeah. honest.
0: And I, I really appreciate that in the writing. Um, another thing that, you know, sort of jumped out at me just as, you know, an African American was his relationship with Basquiat. And sort of that, you know, they were friends, but, you know, that initial sort of tension, like, hey, this artist is getting recognition and I'm not. And so I really appreciate you sort of, you know, just making that known that, hey, Basquiat, you know, as an African, you know, an African-American artist, you know, felt that tension as Herring was sort of getting, getting this. Attention and you know acclaim, um, and just the idea you know, of art for everyone. You know,
1: Basquiat. I can imagine, and I remember him. He uh, quite well. He dated a lot of girls that I knew, and you know, he was very popular with women. Um, I when before I came to live in New York, I worked in a store in L.A. and Basquiat had his first exhibit at the Gagosian Gallery in L.A. Mm-hmm. And he came into this store where I was working and I'd never seen him before. And I thought, wow, <laughs> talk about charisma. You know, he had his hair. Oh, and he was with <laughs> Larry Gagosian. So <laughs> I forgot he's an artist or a musician. He reminded me of Terence Trent Darby. Oh, wow. Remember him? Yeah. Very, very cool, very good looking. And he bought this Comde de Garcons suit. Of course he was, a gray one, just plain gray, almost like um a prison uniform almost, like plain gray suit, very classic. And then the next day he came back and the suit, it looked like he'd done eight paintings and wiped his brushes all over the suit. It was completely covered in paint. And uh, it looked insanely groovy and he just bought another suit. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I was mesmerized with him, but I think he... I think he felt very outside, mm. you know, as the one, there were plenty of, of guys of color in the graffiti movement, but he, you know, he wanted to be a gallery artist, mm. an artist, you know, like Kenny and Sharf. And so I think he probably, some of his, you know, um, his attitude came from feeling outside of that. And Keith Haring, to his credit, when um Basquiat wanted to come to this School of Visual Arts, yes. Keith Herring said, Oh, come in, you know, and <laughs> liked his security card and got him in. And then Basquiat started tagging I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: love that friendship. And I just I love just you know, Herring's inclusivity. I just really felt that throughout the story that you told. And, and I just, I, I loved it. I loved it. So I'm so glad that you were, and it seemed like, you know, even with LA 2 how he brought LA 2 sort of like under, under his, under his wing and, and working with, you know, the black and brown kids of New York, you know, I just thought that was so great.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the great light motifs of his life is his relationship with you know his racial inclusivity. Yeah you know, and the way he handles situations with the body painting with Bill T. Jones and Grace Jones. Oh my the way, goodness. Woo! I mean that's some of my favorite work. Wow. I mean
0: mind blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah. I'm like, I want more. I need to, I need to watch the videos. I need to, oh my God. Like, I just honestly, you know, I've always been more into like the more classical forms of art. I was that, I was that gal. So um, I was like, oh, impressionism, meh, you know, like modernism sloppy. You know? and, <laughs> and even with even with uh, picasso i mean i'm a personal fan of his blue period work more so than the cubism <laughs> i know i'm like sue me but <laughs> this, this when when you get educated and you and you learn more about the artist's story and the journey, like for some reason it just sort of shifts the perspective. So I really I, I'm like okay, let me delve more into this. You see it everywhere, you know it's you know it's been commercialized in different ways, but you know his story is really great, and I want to just touch back on his earlier life, just sort of the, um, you know, he gets to New York and really embraces, you know, his sexuality, which was something that he, you know, I was like, wait, he was like an evangelist? Like, you know, what was going on back home? Just sort of these extremes of, okay, I'm an extreme Christian, and now I'm just gonna, you know, let the guard off and do my thing. So it seemed like there was this sort of tension for a while internally.
1: Oh yeah. I think, you know, um, I grew up in the fifties. Gay homosexuality was legalized when I was like 17 years old wow. and I was already gay. So it was illegal. You, my dad just said to me, You're gonna to go to jail, you're gonna to go to prison, you know, you're gonna get blackmailed, you it was like a one-way ticket to hell. Wow. You know, as, as among society. other things. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought there's another way to figure this out. If you go to the big city and become a window dresser, it could be it could be more fun to be had. But anyway, it was. And So the 70s were a period where um, gay people were like unleashing themselves Mm -hmm. and that took a, you know, that was primarily through the avenue of sexuality. So you had this sort of huge uptick in sex clubs and steam bars and everything was sexy and, you know, this is how it manifested itself and... um, Keith Herring was part of that. He moved into this little apartment, which is right opposite the club bars. yeah, I was like, (laughs) (laughs) whew. Ultimately, is where I'm sure he contracted HIV. And so, you know, it was sort of biblical how it played out in some terrible way. And, um, you know, that's why I think uh, uh, AIDS is a very complex disease. There's so much attached to it that, even COVID doesn't have a touch. Of, there's no shame attached yeah. to COVID, but with AIDS, it's incredibly complex, and people were made to feel ashamed because they had it, and yeah. blah blah blah. So it's, and uh, he he navigated that with a, with a, um, a maturity that's quite surprising, somebody very young. But I saw that with all my a lot of my friends who died, they would get contract AIDS, get very sick, be shunned. by their families and by the, you know, what was left of their friends tried to help each other, but people were dying quite quickly. And, um, no, it was a, a very challenging period, but he, to put it mildly, but he, um, it galvanized him. He became more, um, productive and he decided it gave him an even more acute sense of passing time and how, every moment counted. And he packed in the projects in those last couple of years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you really map that out sort of beautifully. <laughs> you don't miss a beat there. I'm like, wow, he, he completed so many projects. It was almost like he knew that his time was limited and he wanted to make the biggest impact possible, which I thought was extremely great. There was one chapter that really sort of just stuck out to, just stuck out to me and I had to really just like sit down with it for a minute just about um like making it the you know the the changes that happen when, when fame and success sort of come into play as it relates to your relationships, as it relates to your, your, you know, your, your sense of, you know, who you are, like what's happening around, like just so many changes are happening and you sort of go into the different parts of his life and it just made me think about like change in general in one's life. Like when, when you're, you know, moving from nowhere, Pennsylvania, and now you're in New York and you're a big time artist, like who are you? And you mentioned um, that one of his friends said, Oh, we lost, we lost Keith to fame. And I thought that was just, A really interesting perspective. (laughs) I was wondering if you could sort of expand on that as it relates to Keith's life and, and what transpired after.
1: Um, I think, I think that, that was probably Kenny Sharp who was talking, or or one of the women he lived with, Mm -hmm. they were talking about a specific period where they felt they'd lost into fame. And, um, I think if you like, I think I love sports, and I follow basketball. And, uh, <laughs> I love, But mostly I follow English soccer ah. and the Premier League, and I've written a book about it. I'm very obsessed with it. But you see with sports figures, they hit the big time, and all of their nightmares come true. Mm. And it's the terrible crux you you do this thing that you love if you're an artist or a sports person and then you get recognition for it and then you get a ton of recognition for it and all of a sudden your, your 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 problems are exponentially increasing and some people are really good at handling that you know some people but I'm not sure I would be if I became stratospherically famous and wealthy like um I can only imagine how complex you know, people's lives are I, I, you know, I often get Oh, hello, I love you I love your windows <laughs> On the street Or I was on those VH1 shows For so many years A lot of people, you know, say hi Because they recognize me from I love the 80s Yes, and love- yes And that's a nice level of manageable Low-key recognition Where people are just like Hey Yeah I know. <laughs> It's very good very nice it makes you feel happy and but then imagine the can't leave your house fame the like paparazzi in the bushes fame the the our kids have to have bodyguards because they're, they're targets for kidnapping fame that i mean yeah i think it's it gets very complicated and then managing people's feelings like once you get Keith Herring had an entourage Mm -hmm. of people who worked with him, collaborated with him, but were also dependent on him. And he was dependent on them. And those are immensely complex relationships. I think musicians have to deal with that and sports people. And I'm very sympathetic to that and glad I never had it. Yeah. you know, I don't want it ever. (laughs) I had a J-O-B for decades (laughs) and my life was fairly straightforward. (laughs) And uh, yeah, no. I um
0: you're like I'm good here.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm fascinated by that. Aren't you like what fame does to people? Oh, Simon, it's so interesting
0: you would say that because even the folks that I've interviewed for this podcast, you know, uh, some of them just astronomical fame at one point, you know, in the 80s, 90s. And now it's like a different, you know, a different life. But it it wasn't as if it didn't happen. But it just shows just how fleeting fame is and how fleeting fa- fame can be. And just really at the core of your life, it's who are you and, you know, what, what do you define as your purpose? And then being okay with that and just living your life,
1: <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I think it's, um, it, it gets very complicated. And then you see someone like Basquiat yeah. get involved with drugs, yes. and, you know, like creative people are often a bit fragile and end up, you know, trying to deal with their pain in ways like that and then someone like Basquiat his values now are very much higher than Keith Haring's mm. like his painting sell for many I know many isn't that wild and much <laughs> like Keith Haring can get three or four or five mil for a painting Basquiat's are in the building you know that's yeah. like insane and it's just so awful he's not here to see it yeah you know he's not here to enjoy it um no fame. Madonna's always talked a lot about it. She says she's, she wanted it so much, but it's, you know, brought her feelings of despair, intimate, you know, occasionally. Yeah. not. I think she deals with it. She actually does seem very cut out for yes. it. <laughs> dealing with it complex life, yeah. But it, I'm sure it's not always, I'm sure she has admitted. There were moments of complete despair and, um, but. I guess most of the time she's on top of it. Uh, She's she's amazing. Uh, And then what about her relationship with Keith Hare? I know. Well, you know, it's so, I was like, oh
0: my God, they all hung out together. And then you are so funny. You're like, oh, they like the same guys. And I thought that was so funny. It's just like, they have the same taste in men. Of course they're going to like hang out together.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that was a quote from, from, uh, from both of them, I've <laughs> publicly acknowledge that. that's something I came up with. They both said it. Yeah, no, like um, jelly bean. Oh benitas. my goodness,
0: it, I had to look I, him up, Simon. I was like, oh, oh a young jelly bean. I, he was
1: g- gorgeous and talented, oh. and very pivotal in creating house music. It's, you know, part of that revolution. Oh. Uh, um, yeah. It was amazing. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And they also shared that sense that they weren't taken seriously because they were popular, Mm. which is like an interesting thing if you think about it. Okay. So I like to communicate with people. I'm popular. Yeah. Well, in the art world, that can be like, a snooty, you know, pe- snooty people can turn on you and say, well, you're not having an exhibit yes. at, at the National Museums because you're a popular artist. So, and Madonna, because um, she was so hugely popular, people didn't see her as an artist, wow. they saw her as a pop star. So she had, she still to this day, I think, deals with that wow annoying thing where, you know, like... Um, She did make some really good art Papa Don't Preach Those are great songs (laughs) That have a meaning And have dimension to them You know, so um, Same with Keith Haring Like, uh his stuff, because it's so accessible, is easy to dismiss. Oh, he's in the pop category and da, 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 da. But then you realize, wait a minute, there's got to be some profound stuff in there for them to have him and Madonna to have this incredible enduring appeal, like enduring. Like there are young kids who discover Keith Haring now. They have no idea he's been dead for 40 years. No idea. (laughs) No idea because his stuff is is touching them, communicating them, and they like it. They like how it looks. And Kanye West has the passion. I love that last
0: chapter of the (laughs) postmortem. Have you seen Kanye's hair? I I love that. And it's true. It's so relevant. And I, I think it's interesting that that push against the establishment sort of came up quite a bit in your book, just about Sort of like you mentioned, um, you know, like the herring badge, by the way, which I thought was brilliant, just sort of giving people a piece of his artwork, making it affordable, you know, various pieces accessible, Um, and then people looking down on that. But what I think is interesting, and you probably would agree, every time an artist breaks the rules or goes against the establishment, they're actually creating a new form of art that most likely will have that longevity and impact, you know?
1: Yeah. And then sometimes, like, um, you know, I think of Jay-Z and Beyonce, obviously stratospherically successful. And both of them, you've seen these moments where they step back and they want to create something more complex. Yeah. Like Jay-Z did the co- collaboration with Marina Abramovic. Oh, I that?
0: loved it. I watched it a and million times.
1: Her <laughs> formation album felt like, Oh, she, she wants to add dimension to what she does. So blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, I think that's an impulse people have. I want to, I like to be popular. I want everyone to hear my music, but then you also want to be taken seriously. And how do you do that? And, blah, 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 blah. blah, And I think they, it's interesting to watch them navigate that very creatively. And I love,
0: um, the resilience that you highlight, um, especially towards the end of his life. There's this part where it's like, he finds out he has AIDS and he's just sort of like, you know, most people would do this or that or give up. And you're like, not our Keith. And I was like, yes, (laughs) I love it. Just that resilience of, you know what, things seem like they're crashing, but I'm going to keep making art. I'm going to keep, you know, keep making an impact, keep expressing myself. I thought, you know, it it was, you know, I had a very challenging day when I read that and I was like, you're right. You're right, Simon. It just lifted my spirits. And I was like, yes, Keith, Keith can rise. I can too. And I, I think there's, there's something to his story that really connects with that.
1: Well, I think that his book should be read by everyone at high school and college now because these kids who are now finishing their education are in for a very rough ride. Like, I'm very worried about Mm -hmm. the employment prospects for young people now, you know, as we come out of hopefully this COVID situation. I'm very worried about it because when I was a kid, You know, my first job was in a bottle top factory. When I was 16, I left school. I subsequently got back into the education system, but there were jobs that you could get. There were jobs in retail where you could tread water and figure out who you were going to be, how to be, how to function. Now these jobs are falling away. And I think it's, um, so the resilience that Keith Herring showed throughout his formative years, like as an example, there was a particular college he wanted to, to study at, but he couldn't get in and didn't have the money. So he worked as a janitor in that college, like cleaning oh, yeah. toilets, yes. taking out the trash and taking classes in semiotics. Ooh, and I like, felt that. <laughs> like, I think that kind of thinking now when no one's handing you nothing, yeah. no one. And so I think for young people to to be Keith Herring would be somebody good to keep in their sights. Like, oh, he was unstoppable. Yes. You know, like he he was took how many dishwashing jobs did he take? to keep things moving and to pay the rent and pay his expenses and buy art supplies. And I found all that very inspiring. And I relate to it because at my generation, we were like that working class kids who wanted to be part of the swinging groovy situation (laughs) that's unfolding. Same here,
0: (laughs) working for free. (laughs) I've done all kinds of jobs, cleaning, everything.
1: (laughs) You relate. So I think like, here's his resilience what you can what you can accomplish if you're just if you're not distracted and you're willing to you know just do something to pay the rent while you figure out the big stuff or the other stuff or whatever stuff so yeah I think um what what do you think about the prospects for young people I mean I think you're a young person oh, too I
0: thank so. you I I am a young 35 I guess <laughs> 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 like, yeah, <laughs> I have like two children, <laughs> toddlers. Like, um, you do? I do. I know. I know. It's it's muffled
1: in another room <laughs> <where> they...
0: <laughs> You know they they are they are not here right now. You know they're giving mommy a break to get some work done, which I appreciate. <laughs> but they're great. How old are they? Two and four. Why wow. would I would not be able to do this this interview right now if they were <laughs> if they were here? <laughs> See, I to me
1: as a childless sixty eight year old that is truly heroic.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one would be literally hanging from my head right now. I'd be like
1: excited. <laughs> I think childbearing is so noble. You know, um, do you know Lauren Mack? She just. Did a show with my Johnny. They've been working on a show together. And I went to the set and hung out with them both. And she has these two kids. And I thought, you're, you could, people that do this and that. Yeah. Yeah. Me, I'm so impressed oh, with that. thank okay. you. Thank you. <laughs> you take my toupee off. You know, um,
0: tapping into my Keith Herring, like I, I'm one of those people like driven. I'm like, let's do it. Let's carve out the time. If I have to read the book into the nights, I will do so. Um, You know, I just really, really love, I love what I do. I love fashion. I love the people in it. I consider you know, the fashion folks, my fashion family, you know, whether they're functional or dysfunctional, I feel like the passion sort of unites us all. But as it relates to the next generation, you know, I always talk to the younger kids. I'm just like, hey, like, if you want this, you really, really, really have to give it your all. And like you said, the focus is key. So if you have to, you know, I was a hostess, I've, you know, been like, you know, one of those random like servers at private parties, like to make money, like whatever it took, I I did what I needed to do so that I could progress and be there. And it's so interesting. One of my first Um, jobs was actually, um, and the, I was an assistant buyer at Bloomingdale. So that whole retail, yeah, Stephanie Solomon. Hey, Stephanie. Well, then she went to Lord and Taylor and then she did her own. So, you know, Stephanie and all of them, like love, love, love. Um, So, yeah, like I, you know, and then IMG. So, you know, just it, it's so funny. My old boss is like, Kirsten, I didn't know you were working at Dos Caminos as a hostess. You know, I'm like, yes, nights and weekends so I can pay my rent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so just it's like you just got to do what you have to do. If you love it, give it your all, you know, take the jobs you need to take you know, so that you can be in the room and, and learn what you need to learn and, and be creative and be who you are, you know?
1: Well said. I mean, Dana and I, we share an obsession with Diana Ross, oh. as I, everyone does, I hope. And her life, I think she's another hero for me, like Keith Herring, because, you know, there she is in Detroit sewing the costumes wow. as a teenager for the Supremes herself in the projects. And like, making it happen, doing what you have to do and, you know, keeping your, I think that's so, you know, and mahogany and the whole situation.
0: Oh, mahogany. Oh my goodness. I love, I I love Diana Ross. And it's so funny you mentioned Detroit. I actually had a conversation with Veronica Webb and she was (laughs) going, she just, I mean, educated me so much. She was like, well, you... I was like, there's so many fashion people who come out of Detroit. Like, why is that? You know, you got Tracy, you got Patrick. Like, what's going on here? And she was like, well, you you have to remember what came out of Detroit. Detroit had Motown. I said, well, excuse me? She was like, yeah, you could go to the grocery store and run into Barry Gordy. I said, what? <laughs> so it's like this magical time and this magical place. And just, you know, there's all of these things that happen around the nation throughout time that not everyone is privy to. So it's just hearing those stories and the glamour and, the, and all the drama and the entertainment, I love
1: it. Yeah. I'm addicted to that period. I've read lots of books about Barry Gordy and Diana Ross. It was huge in England, like because we didn't have, um, you know, segregation. Mm -hmm. So the black artists would come to England and they loved it because they were just treated properly. And so all of those, the Motown artists were all very popular in England, would tour regularly. And, um, uh, I remember the first time seeing the Supremes on TV and just losing my shit. <laughs> You're like, who is like, that? It was so glamorous, <laughs> so beautiful. And uh, yeah. I love it. So, yeah.
0: Well, I, you know, this is a fashion moment. And one thing that we ask all of our guests is to just, you know, talk about, and you have a million, but like one of your favorite fashion moments of all time and why it can be personal, professional, um, something that you observed really up to you. It could even be like last week. It's up to you.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, what just sprang to mind. I'll tell you what just popped into my head. You know, Stella Tennant, the model who just died. There was a moment in the 90s, where Yoji Yamamoto used to be one of the big shows of Paris Mm. at that point in the 90s. It was Helmut Lang, Mm. Alaya, um, you know, that period of 90s, Jill Sander. And um, Yoji Yamamoto had this big structured metal runway. And the first model out was Stella Tennant wearing this, it looked like from a distance, a Chanel kind of style suit mm. but it was all raw edges oh, love you know that. With threads yes. tangling down no one had ever done that before so taking like a Chanel type suit and having the raggedy edges on yeah. it there was just one of those weird moments where she looked so perfect and it was like oh my god and then if you think about raw seams and that became such a huge thing and even now we just take it for granted yeah. but then it was just this sort of Daring, audacious moment of creativity where somebody done something. And it was the fact that it was styled like a kind of oh, Chanel moment beautiful. was was audacious and cheeky. And then with the raw. I love it. Raw. raw, raw, raw. <laughs> like like you or I just hacked it with the yeah, gardening I mean, It heels. became a thing. It, I had no idea. That's where
0: it started.
1: Well, in my mind, that's where it started, but I'm sure like punk, mm, maybe use raw But um it kind of where it it was just a big moment and also black you know the trend for black which was so dominant in the 90s you know yoji was a big part of that so that that sprang to mind because especially with you know Stella Tennant dying recently so beautiful um, oh one of my favorite models ever strange sort of androgynous and she definitely occupied her unique own space yeah
0: absolutely well Thank you so much. I, I, I have to ask, will we be saying more, um, books on various artists? Is this a part of a series or?
1: Um, it is part of a series, but other people are doing the other books. Oh. They offered me the herring one because they knew I'd lived in New York at that time and, and had collaborated with him and, you know, uh, so yeah.
0: I lo- uh, honestly, like I, like, I don't, I don't know if you could partner with the MoMA or something like I mean I just want to hear more like I love your writing I I mean a workshop a class or something you're just so knowledgeable about about you know art and and I feel like your perspective is just truly inspirational and I'm like I want more like I want I want a full course like I want I want a semester Simon <laughs>
1: Oh, thank you darling. That's a lovely compliment. Um, you know, one of my secrets is that I stopped drinking in like 1980, early eighties. Oh, wow. And so I have a great memory. <laughs> a lot of my friends are like, I can't believe you can remember like that Stella Tennant thing and stuff like that. It, it's all in there, so eventually it'll all go, and I'll just be staring into the middle. <laughs> distance like Whistler's mother, you've got me before my whistler's mother period. I love it.
0: I love it. Well, you have been. It has been such a treat chatting with you. I cannot wait to see more of your projects, and and obviously supporting you on making it. You and Dana. I, I I'm actually gonna text her after we're done, but. Thank you so much. It's been phenomenal chatting with you. So
1: well, thank you for having me. And everyone who w- listens to this should Google um, Iman, Keith Haring jacket, Barney's. So you can see what Iman wearing the jacket that Keith Herring made at Barney's and her and Madonna walking down the, the stairway together. Oh, the way you and describe that, that I, I just, it was so, it's so magical. Like that. Like that body painting he did on Grace Jones, yeah. but on a denim jacket. Um, yeah, in Missy Man, in her Aliyah dress with the jacket on oh, the top.
0: Ah, oh, I got chills so as I was reading. I was like, oh my. I got just the way you describe her, just sort of like floating in. And I just, <laughs> I got chills. I, I, I really did. I was like, oh my God. So thank you. We'll be adding those to the show notes for sure. you know i live for this simon i'm having a blast thank you so
1: much all right darling thank you for having me and have a great day you too
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Now it's time for my favorite segment where we get to hear from you, our listeners, about your favorite fashion moments.
2: This is Elisa J. Gould from Washington, DC. A favorite fashion moment that is difficult, because there are so many, but a personal one is when the fabulous Pussy Noir invited me to curate a sustainable fashion show at an event at Trade Bar in D.C., an LGBTQ bar, and I had to come up with 16 looks using four models. So I had one male, three females. The 16 looks were created with eight pieces of clothing for all the models. And well, it was just incredible. So that was one. And I would have to say the second one was, of course, Miss Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, when she goes shopping with the amazing Richard Gear, and just transforms her whole look, returns to the original boutique, and reminds them to not judge a book by its cover.
0: Thanks so much for joining me for this week of a fashion moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras.
2: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patricios for their song, Hot Coffee.